0: We are reading out of Psalm 79, 1 through 7. O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste in his habitation. This is the word of the God. I'm jumping on my trampoline this week. We got a little one of those indoor trampolines. Um, a good friend of mine, Guy Evans, says it really it helps with the uh, like mind and calms your mind down. It enables you to focus, and I guess I was in need of some focusing, so I got on my trampoline. I was doing jumping jacks on my trampoline in my bedroom, and, and we have this beautiful painting hiding hanging up in our bedroom. And This, this painting was a piece that uh, Jennifer Barstad did for us for the Exodus series. And I'm looking at this painting as I'm jumping. And all of a sudden, I had this, one of those, those, those light bulb moments, right? Where the light bulb comes on over your head. You've seen the cartoons. I had a light bulb moment uh, while I was jumping on the trampoline this week. We are diving into ap- ap- apocalyptic literature. We're, we're diving into literature that is, that is fuzzy and that is filled with imagery. And that is not quite clear on some things. And as I'm jumping on the trampoline, I'm like, that's apocalyptic literature. <laughs> you know, when we first showed this painting to people, we got some varied responses. People were like, that painting makes me feel uncomfortable. I can't, like, see definite shapes. I can't see definite images of people. I can't see, like, like definable things in that, in that painting. And that, and that bothers me. And so for us, when we dive into ap- apocalyptic literature here, we're not seeing explicitly defined things, and it makes us feel uncomfortable. Like, why didn't God just clearly define this and lay it all out for us? Why isn't this a lot more like Daniel chapters 1 through 6? I like Dan. Can we go back to Daniel chapters 1 through 6? Can we please do that so that I can understand things a little bit more clearly? But God has a wonderful special purpose for us in this. Now, there are some of you this morning, I was speaking to someone this morning, and they looked at this painting and they're like, man, I love that painting. I, to me, it just it brings such incredible feelings. And he was able and it just, it's beautiful. And I see the artistry in that painting. And for the people that really like this, apocalyptic literature, probably for you, are like, okay, I don't have to know everything. I don't have to have everything so defined. I'm okay with that. But for, for most people, I think we're very Greek-minded in our, in our mindset, and we need to know, right? We need to know. Tell me everything. I need to know. Because if you don't tell me what I need to know, how am I supposed to understand how this is to change my life? Well, before we dive into this text again this morning, I'm going to do something that I'm going to give you the main thrust of this text, what I think of this text out front, and then spend the rest of our time kind of demonstrating to you What I believe God is teaching us and supporting of that. In verse 17 of Daniel chapter 8, and before I dive in any further, Colleen's been so patient with me. Um, If you need a Bible, so is Curtis, if you need a Bible, Ha ah, I brought Bibles this morning. Yeehaw. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand and Curtis and Colleen, I'll give you a Bible this morning. We really want people in the Word of God studying along with us, reading along so the Holy Spirit works through as we read the Word of God together and study it together. And so we want that taking place this morning. So don't be shy. We're not going to embarrass you or call you out if you didn't, none of that. So just raise your hand and we'll get you a Bible. All right. Very good. And we're in Daniel chapter eight, Daniel chapter eight. Daniel chapter 8, in verse 17, we read, So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. The angel Gabriel, who in a minute we'll read about, list Gabriel here as one of the angels here that that is speaking directly to Daniel in this vision, is telling Daniel, I want you to understand these things. Now what's interesting about the understanding of this passage, it's an understanding in that kind of sense. It's not an understanding of like when you see the statue of David. How many know when I say the statue of David I'm talking about, right? Very defined statue, right? Looks like a human face, very definable features. Muscular, brawn, okay? And and, and you see all that in the sculpture of David. But when the angel Gabriel is saying to Daniel, I want you to understand this. I want you to understand it in this sense. And that God is going to reveal some of these things to you, but not fully define it all for you. But you're to understand this and understand that this is a time for an end. And we're going to dive into in a minute what is being described there for the time of the end. He is to believe that God has set up this time, has defined these days, and is sovereign over all of these days. And you could, over each section of Daniel chapter 7 all the way to verse, uh, chapter 12 right? Sovereign God. God is sovereign. God has, just like that painting, has a set four corners, right? And it is as a defined space. So these times in which God is going to describe to Daniel are set and are defined by God. Daniel's to understand this. So let's dive in together here this morning. As we look at this text, we find ourselves, and if you were to look at chronologically the book of Daniel, we're back in between Daniel's chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. And we're right after Daniel chapter 7 because it was in the first year of King Belshazzar's reign that Daniel had that first vision in Daniel chapter 7. It is now the third year of Belshazzar's reign in Daniel chapter 8. God gives him a vision And it is during this time, and I'm going to show you up here. Notice the pink area is is during the Babylonian reign. It is still the Babylonian empire when Daniel has this vision. But the vision is going to describe some empires to come. The way we're going to study this this morning is we're going to break this chapter up by first looking at the vision and then looking at the interpretation of that portion of the vision. So we're going to begin with a goat with one horn. Okay, The goat with one horn. I guess I might have deleted that slide. Okay. The goat with one horn. Here we go. Starting in verse 1. In the year, third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, when I saw, I was in Susa, the cat citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at Ulai Canal. Now, it's very interesting. Scholars have debated, was, was Daniel actually physically present in the Susa, the citadel by this canal? Or was he once again taken in a vision to this place? They're 50-50 on this, and so we can either go either way and say, you know what? He was taken or placed. But either way, God gave him this vision. And I saw in this vision and I was at the Ulai Canal and I raised my eyes and I saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal and it had two horns and both horns were high but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last and I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward but no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue him from his power. And he did as he pleased and became great. Now I want you to turn over to verse 15. as The the interpretation of this vision is given. And when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Again, there's this understanding. And behold, therefore, and behold there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, and it called Gabriel, and, it was, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. And so he came there where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And, we came and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the, of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now it's interesting here, oftentimes when we think of the end, we put it in our current contemporary situation. And so when we think of the end in regards to apocalyptic literature, we think of the end of this reign in this world, and when Jesus Christ will return and establish his kingdom forever. But there's also this Hebrew understanding of of, of time periods within earlier time. And so this end of this reign of these kingdoms and this end of specifically a time of horrible, incredible persecution and outright defiance against God. And this is coming. And God is going to give Daniel this vision so that Daniel knows that God is even in charge of this time. And he's going to give them that that time will come to an end. Verse 20, as for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Now, we understand that Daniel is currently seeing this vision during the Babylonian reign. But God has already told Daniel that there's going to be a kingdom that's going to come and that's going to destroy the Babylonian Empire and take it over. And this is the Persian Empire. Now, things have grown a little bit, hasn't it? The Persian Empire is bigger. The scholars think that the, two, the difference between the two horns is the difference between the two kings, the one the median king and the one the Persian king, and that the Persian king is greater than the median king, and so it is bigger. And the goat is the king of Greece. Oops, I'm getting ahead of myself. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. The kingdom has grown both in every direction south, north, east, and west. The next vision that we see here is this vision with a ram with two horns. And this begins in verse 9. We're going to begin actually in verse 5. If I can get my glasses on, I'll be able to see a little bit better here. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth. Without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him. "'and his powerful wrath. "'And I saw him close to the ram, "'and he was enraged against him, "'and he struck the ram, "'and he broke his two horns, "'and the ram had no power to stand before him. "'But he cast him down to the ground "'and trampled on him, "'and there was no one who could rescue the ram "'from his power. "'Then the goat became exceedingly great. "'But when he was strong, "'the great horn was broken, "'and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns.' toward the four winds of heaven. We see here, as we're gonna turn now to chapter, verse, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 21, the interpretation of this vision. And the goat is the king of Greece. Take a look at the Greek empire. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. Most commentators are in universal agreement in regards to who this horn is, this great king is. It is the king we all know as Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great comes upon the scene as a very young general rises up and he moves swiftly and he destroys people in his path. Listen to a bit of history here. Nothing could more eloquently summarize the overwhelming defeat Alexander visited upon the Persian forces in battle at the Granicus River in 334 BC. With only 35,000 men, Alexander's forces plunged through the river attacking Darius, 100,000 footmen. Now, last time I checked, 35,000 versus 100,000 footmen plus another 10,000 horsemen. Most people wouldn't like those odds. Reportedly, Alexander the Great reportedly killed 20,000 at only a loss of 100 Greek troops. Alexander the Great storms on the scene and destroys and wipes out the Persian Empire and establishes an empire greater than the world has known to this point. It is a vast empire. But something happens to this horn. His life is cut short at the age of 33. And in his stead and in his place, the kingdom is divided amongst his, the powerful people. Now, people want to say, well, it's divided amongst these four generals, but the more they study history, it doesn't seem to be that clean. But this writing of this text seems to point, have you heard of the saying, scattered to the four winds? Yeah? Yeah? That this understanding of this text could reveal to us that this quite literally, the Greek empire, is scattered amongst the powerful people. Now, amongst those powerful individuals, certain ones rise up. As we see with this, four horns rise up. But there's one horn that seems to rise up above the others. And we see that as we look here in verse 9 of chapter 8. Out of one of them, out of those four horns, a little horn, which grew exceedingly great, toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now understand, when we're talking about this, it is specifically mentioning and understanding the idea of it is growing towards, moving towards Israel, the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with a regular burnt offering because of transgression. It will throw, away, throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, and the transgression that it makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and hosts to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Turn with me over to verse 23 to hear Gabriel as he interprets what this vision means. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. And his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper. And under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. And without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for as refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision. I did not understand it. I'd like to read an excerpt of history for you in regards to who most theologians agree is this little horn. One of the four horns or divisions from the Alexandrian Empire was that of Syria which was governed by one of Alexander's generals, Silicus Nicanor, progenitor of the Seleucid dynasty, Antiochus Epiphanes emerged from this dynasty, bearing all the demonic characteristics of the little horn of Daniel's vision. He came to power in 175 BC, succeeding his brother Seleucus. Philippator, and he was in the fact Antiochus IV. Epiphanes was a blasphemous title he arrogated to himself later in his reign. Theos, Antiochus, Epiphanes, meaning the illustrious God. Although others called him Epimenes, meaning the madman, Power-hungry, Antiochus sought to expand his dominion to include Palestine. This brought him into conf- uh, conflict with the Potomac dynasty in Egypt. This brought him into conflict with the Potomac dynasty in Egypt. In Jerusalem, he replaced the high priest with a man of his own choosing. Then he, he then invaded Egypt, and while he was there, a rumor of his death circulated among the Jews, much to their joy. Efforts were made to reinstate the genuine high priest. Antiochus accused the people of rebellion, savagely attacked, and sacked Jerusalem, and executed tens of thousands of its inhabitants. Forty thousand apparently dying within the space of three days. While others were taken captive, he entered the Holy of Holies and the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering. He defiled the temple precincts. He took the sacred furniture and established a traitor, Menelaus, as high priest. In 168 BC, when Antiochus' efforts to take Egypt were foiled by the Romans, he again vented his revenge on the Jews. More than 20,000 of his soldiers massacred the Jews assembled for worship on a Sabbath day, and committed further atrocities and vandalism. The temple was left without the daily sacrifices, religious practices were non-existent, and a statue of Zeus was placed in the temple, and human sacrifices were made on the altar. Circumcision was forbidden, unclean meat was mandatory fare, and the Sabbath and other feast days were profaned. The psalmist describes a similar but perhaps less awful situation. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance, your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps, the dead bodies of your servants they have given as for food for the birds of the air, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. Psalms 79, 1 through 4. This, of course, may indicate days. Another possibility is that it refers to the evening and morning sacrifices and therefore denotes a period of around three years. Soon after that time, the sacrificial system... Would have been restored. If the reference is to the days, then it is fulfilled and would recover the whole period of Antiochus' blasphemous, blasphemous activities. If the reference is to evening and morning sacrifices, then the period envisioned is a shorter time of three and a half years, and the period between the desecration of the temple by the statue of Zeus and its culminating, ultimate cleansing. Why read this to you? I, I think we clearly see in what's being meant here when it is referenced to the time of the end for Daniel that this is specifically referring to Antiochus Epiphanes' onslaught of the Jewish people. Now you may be sitting here this morning going, great history lesson. But why in the world is this here for us today? If that is an event that has already taken place in the past, what does God have for us in understanding what took place, and why he is giving it to them. Now understand, I want you to start here and begin here with me, is that Daniel is made sick. He is sick for six days, unable to return to his duties serving the king because he's sick. Why would he be sick? Thousands were murdered or going to be murdered. It's a horrendous picture. The altar, to have human sacrifices burnt upon the altar. Pigs, the house of God desecrated. Daniel is sick because he loves God and loves God's people. And yet he knows that that time is going to end and it's going to have an end to it. He still loves God and he loves God's people. And to see God's house defiled and to see God's people destroyed makes him ill. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time we got ill over the fact of the slaughter of Christians around the world? Or wait a minute, when we get those emails, just do we quickly delete them because we don't like to think about that? Or we hear it on the news and we go, oh, maybe that really isn't that bad. I mean, it has a delight of spending time with John and Amy Simpson's son this week and their daughter-in-law. With a baby, they traveled to Greece this last year and ministered to Muslims in Greece who are in refugee camps. And if you were to talk to them, they're like, what we did is nothing. Watching these Muslim people come to faith in Jesus Christ, it costs them everything to trust in Jesus. They're severed from the relationships at home. One of them was from Iran. And they were telling me his story. He can no longer have any contact with his family from Iran. And if he ever goes back, because he converted to Christianity, he's a dead man. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time we were broken, heartbroken, made sick over those who are dying in this world for their faith? We don't get it. How much time do we spend praying for the worldwide church? Churches in the Middle East, we're hearing visions, God appearing, revealing himself through visions to people in the Middle East. You know what? I don't put God in a box. If God wants to reveal himself that way to people, amen. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't move in places of the world that it is very hard to penetrate. Are we praying for them? Because for them to profess their faith, for them to go get publicly baptized, could mean their life. Daniel was sick with grief. We know to, to be sick with grief, to feel sorrow is not to deny the sovereignty of God. It is not to deny that God is, is King of kings and Lord of lords in this season and this time will end, but to grieve and to mourn that is to not deny that. In fact, I would argue, to disagree, I would argue that if you don't grieve and if you don't mourn that, then you really don't understand that God did create us to love him and to love others and to love is to have it be a people of passion and care. And concern. There are three things that I would like us to walk away with today as we look at this. We see first that as we look at Alexander the Great and also Antiochus Epiphanes, that there's some hope as we look at evil times. And I want us all to do a favor. I was convicted of something. I was sitting there trying to think of some illustrations to share in regards to help understanding this passage this morning. And every illustration I came up with this morning just seemed to fail to grasp the gravity of what is going on here. None of us in this room have seen this kind of suffering. I want to start there. None of us. To see the onslaught of thousands killed. When I think of thousands being murdered and killed, I think of the Holocaust, which I find just terrifying how history books are trying to gloss that over. I think of the genocide that happened in Rwanda. I think of events that go on in our world where people, thousands of people are just slaughtered. But the good news that we have when we see days like this is that evil will overstep itself. And I think one of the great pictures of that we have is Satan on the cross. Satan, when he, when our Lord and Savior went to the cross for us, There are people out there who profess to be Christians who want to say that the violence of the cross was not necessary. But when you look at lives like Antiochus, Epiphanes, and Hitler, and the things, the travesties of this world, and the devastation of sin, it absolutely was necessary. I am pretty confident that Satan thought he had won. When Christ breathed his last, and he said, it is finished. But what he didn't realize, that evil oversteps itself. And that with the death of Christ came the greatest day in history when Jesus got up and walked out of the grave. And God was completely victorious over sin and death. Another time we see this in scriptures is is Paul in prison. Pretty sure the evil one and the demonic forces were pretty excited to have Paul boxed up in a cage. We've got him. He's going to die. It's over. What happens, right? The earthquake takes place. The jailer and his whole family come to faith in Jesus Christ. Many people believe because evil will overstep itself and God has the last say. And though evil thinks and evil is in this world, God is greater. Evil will always overstep itself, Ferguson says in his commentary. We can therefore wait patiently on the Lord's judgment without seeking vengeance ourselves. Habakkuk three seventeen and 18. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. Though the labor of the olive may fall, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. We could, within our lifetime, see evil wrought upon this world in a way that we've never seen it happen before. I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. But I do believe it's my job as the shepherd of this flock that if we do see days and ages like that to prepare you, that those days and those ages do not leave us hopeless or afraid. Because evil will overstep itself, and God, our God, reigns supreme. And he will defend his people. Point two, strong and great without God is weakness. Don't forget that. We can see people in this culture in today's day and age rise up politicians, philosophers, even theologians, movie star actresses, Oprah. We can see people and we can be afraid. We're like, She's got billions of people following her. She's loved by everybody. If she runs by president, for president, she's in. OK, If God wants her to be president, she's going to be president. But the strong and the mighty who are without God are nothing but weak. They're powerless. and their time is already set. God's kingdom, God's reign, is eternal. We don't have to be afraid. Look at Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes, great mighty men. All of them deed, right? They're in the grave. And, I don't, we know, and, and when, when God calls that final trumpet and everybody's raised again and resurrected him in the final time, I don't want to be them. We are never so vulnerable, and I want you to hear this truth, We are never so vulnerable as when we believe ourselves to be strong by our own strength. A warning to us this morning that when we see the pride and we see the susceptibility of such powerful individuals, let us be warned that when we start going on our own strength and our own might and our own wisdom, we are never more susceptible. Only those who are submitted to God's Spirit can ever ultimately be in control of their own lives. This is because only those who are whole lives are controlled by the Lord will be motivated to grow in control of the whole of their lives. Brothers and sisters, we talked about this several weeks ago. We talked about living holy, fully submitted lives to God as we surrender our lives to God that is when we gain the most control. And it's so weird, God loves doing this, right? Like, wait a minute, I have to give my life away in order to have control? Absolutely. Pride can motivate us to have a well-controlled body. I think of of athletes and I think of individuals who push themselves really hard physically and and will train and train and train for a specific event. And they may have a well-controlled body But guess what? It doesn't mean that they have a self-controlled life. Because oftentimes when we're going after something like that, I've thought about my food and had a great conviction this week in my life as I'm working through this issue of how I view and perceive food. And so I'm journaling now um, my food. I've got a wonderful app on my phone and it's quite convicting when you have to stare at how much you're actually eating every day. That's a little convicting to me, but I began to think I can self-control, I can control this in my life, I can control food. And all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, I could really like work hard at this and and I can be mighty and strong in my own ways and work hard at this, but never have a self-controlled life. I may get all the weight off and, and say, look, I've done this and I've done this all by myself, but guess what? I can be far from God because I've never understood how God wants me to view food as from him, as nourishment provided by him. And then I don't have to gorge myself. I don't have to eat when I'm stressed out. And only then can I realize that, in surrendering this area of my life to God that I can have this self-controlled life in him. The third point I would like you to see this morning in light of this passage is that Satan opposes the work of God among his people. brothers and sisters as we live to surrender our lives to God we're going to come under the attack of the evil one and the scariest part of this to me is the longer i've lived a christian i've come to realize a very scary truth is my flesh naturally wants to join satan's forces my flesh wants to pursue Satan's path. And then when God, when Paul says in so wonderful scriptures in Second Corinthians 5, what we've been reading, that when he says that we're a new creation in Christ Jesus, this should come with a shout of acclamation that my flesh, which I will continue to battle, does not need to control me, and so I do not need to be manipulated and controlled by the opposing forces of the evil one because I've been made new in Jesus Christ. That's why when, when Jesus says, I'm going away, And the disciples are freaking out going, Jesus, if you leave, we're doomed. We're destined. He goes, no, you're not because I'm going to give you the comforter. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit indwells us so we can have victory in opposition to the forces of the evil one. As he opposes us, we get to oppose him right back because we're indwelled by the very power of God. This is exciting for us that we do not need to live in fear of this. I remember when I was a teenager, we used to sit around a campfire and we'd go to Christian camps or uh, choir retreats or go and get ready for Mexicali and, and, and the, the cool thing to do, I guess, was to sit around a campfire and tell stories of like what happens when people like play with Ouija boards and, you know, what, those kind of tarot cards and, and people experiencing evil forces. And I remember getting so freaked out as a kid over all that stuff. And I wish I could have those moments back to sit there and say... You know, I don't remember a time when any of us as teenagers stopped and said, but God's power is so much more powerful. When we have stopped and said, but the cross, the cross gives us freedom that we don't need to live in fear of the evil one. The Holy Spirit which indwells us. We don't, need to, we don't need to have our focus there. We can leave that stuff behind us and we can look to the cross and say, we have power in Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. There are three ways specifically that Satan opposes us and tempts us. He encourages us to conform to a different Standard. Notice when it spoke of in the text about Antiochus Epiphanes, basically downplaying truth and replacing truth with a lie, basically taking good and turning it into evil. We see this happening today. Open our eyes, brothers and sisters. Open our eyes. This is happening today. People are screaming, "Evil is now good." It's happening. And it's up to us as Christians to recognize that and to oppose that. And we don't let that come within our church body. We stand firm against that. We stand strong against that. As brothers and Christians, we recognize evil for what it is, and we call it out as evil. We shouldn't be tricked to conform to the world. The second thing that we see, just as Antiochus sought to cast down the sanctuary, Satan seeks to destroy the new temple of God the living fellowship of God's people. And let me tell you something. I am on a major hobby horse on this one. This has become something that has become so powerfully clear to me. I sat with a dear brother this week and we were sitting around talking and I told him, I said, there's a hill that I will die upon. And that hill is seeing consumerism driven from the body of Christ. To see persecute, to see us stop looking at the gathering of together of the saints as, as, as a business thing. But to start understanding it is as, as a family thing. That we would start understanding that God, Christ died to make us a family. We're not to sit here and say, well, I like this, and I like this, and I like that. I mean, I look at all the churches that are across America today, and I think that as we've divided and subdivided and subdivided, the evil one has gotten into churches, gotten into the backdoor churches, and we see once very conservative denominations are pulled into, into other directions because somebody stood up and said, I don't like that about church, but I like that about church. I don't like that theology. I like that theology. And all of a sudden, personal preference split churches. And the evil one's laughing and he Go, sweet, people like this. I don't like this music. I like that music. I don't like this guy teaching because he's not as polished as this guy. And, and the evil one's just laughing and loving and going, sweet, the family of God is getting fractured every which way. And we're seeing denominations like the Presbyterian church, which, man, Jonathan Edwards. If you don't know who he is, do a little research on Jonathan Edwards. He was, was a big-time Presbyterian guy. And we see the Presbyterian church fractured. And now Presbyterian churches, some of them and the PCUSA and others are are denying the truth of the word of God. We're seeing devastating effects happen as we see them. The Lutheran church, a once very conservative church. And now we have slants of the Lutheran church that are denying the truth and the validity of the word of God to make room for people practicing sin openly. It's happening not just across the Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Church, it's also happening as we see the United Methodist Church. We see it across all these denominations, across all the spectrum. And now, all of a sudden, you know what used to be cool, a community church, you'd, if you thought of a community church, oh, you think of a, you know like a community-minded church, and you walk in and now all of a sudden you've got to like go onto the website, and you've got to really clearly understand what you're walking into. And they're calling themselves churches, brothers and sisters. I think this happened because all of a sudden the evil one is getting in there and he's driving it. I like this theology. I don't like that theology. Instead of being having hearts ruled by the power of God and people submitted to the authority of God, people said, "I like," and "I like" is just devastating our churches. So I may have a short lifespan in the church. Because brothers and sisters, I believe that this is devastating to our church families. I'm very passionate about it if you can't tell. Ferguson says in his commentary, the evil one may try to induce false teaching in the pulpit, lethargic worship in the pew, or simple discord and dissension in the fellowship. Finally, point three, Satan is very skilled at introducing wrong thinking and doctrinal controversy in the church. Deceitful teaching is always a mark of the Antichrist. This is why we preach and teach this. This is why we keep going back to the word of God and we look to it as the founding principles and we believe in the authority of scriptures. And I want to challenge you with one thing before I leave out of here today. I've been reading a book by Eugene Peterson um, who authored or wrote the message and I know there's differing opinions on that but Eugene has written a good book for pastors called Working the Angles. Good name for a book about pastors, right? Working the Angles. That sounds like a good pastor book. Any book in his book, he argues that pastors and he is very. He think I'm strong with my language. He's very strong with his language and about what's happened to the pastor. He said, "Pastors' sole responsibility is to focus on three things: prayer, the reading and the understanding of the Word of God, and teaching others to read and understand the Word of God." And he's crying out for pastors to return to that. And in his section and talking about reading and studying the Word of God, he argues that we have lost the ability to read the Word of God. And he cites three things that have happened to us as people in this world today that have impacted us and and how we read the Word of God. And the first one is is actually a good invention, but had some bad outcome. Gutenberg and the printing press. Before Gutenberg and the printing press, if you wanted to hear the word of God, you'd go to a Sunday gathering somewhere and you'd hear the the priest or you'd hear the pastor read from the word of God because the word of God was extremely hard to find. In fact, libraries back in those days had the word of God chained to a desk because it would get up and it would walk away because so many people wanted it, but it was so rare. But all of a sudden, with the Gutenberg press, now we've got four copies of the Word of God on our shelf, and all of them collecting dust. Instead of, and now we're also there's another effect that took place: is now we're inundated with so many books and so much literature that the words are screaming through our head 100 miles an hour, and that we go to read the Word of God. The Word of God is in competition with so much other stuff out there that we're reading, and that has been made available to us. While it was a great invention, as as we can see that the Word of God could get copied and put in more language, there was also this devastating impact that it had on us. The second, he said, that thing that harms us when we look at Scripture is formal education. Sorry, teachers. But formal education teaches us to read for what? The facts. Just the facts, man. Just the facts, right? We pick up a textbook and we open it. What are we doing? We're looking for the facts. We're studying for a test. We're getting just what we need to get out of it and we're pulling what we need. The problem is, we do that is as soon as we come over here and we start reading the Word of God, we do the same thing. God, I've got this problem in my life today. I'm being prideful. I'm being selfish. Give me my fix. God, I'm having a hard time being patient in my life. Give me my fix. And we read the word of God for, for what we're just, we're, I just want to grab this out of us, I just want to grab that out okay, I'm good, I'm done. I'm, he argues that we have stopped wanting to hear from God when we read the scriptures. That when we read them, this is why we say when we have scriptures reading us up here, this is the word of God. Because we want to remind you, this isn't John Steiner up here, this isn't his words. This is the word of God to us. That's why we tend to, and we forgot to tell you this morning, but we tend to stand when we read Scripture. Because when we tend to stand versus sitting, again, it draws up more of our attention, and we want our full attention. I would be fine if you all closed your eyes and, and, and acted like, man, I'm just I'm hearing from God right now as the word of God is shared. The third thing that he offers up is, is this idea of consumerism. As pastors, we tend to read Scripture for how we can fix others. <laughs> it's, it's bad. I'm going to be guilty of this. Right? You're, you're, oh, this is, yes, this is for so-and-so. Great. Glad I read that this morning. Or, or you're, you're reading for, oh, this will impact that, that thing going on in our church. Or, or this will impact this evil in our society. Versus us just sitting here and understanding and clearing out all those distractions in our mind and just hearing from God when we sit and read the Scriptures. You see, for us to say we love God means that we need to hear from God. And the word of God is his spoken word to us. Now, we struggle with that because it's in black and white in writing, right? It's in black and white in writing. We're, We're like, this isn't an auditory thing. Then I challenge you to do something this week. I challenge you to open up your word of God and read it out loud. Stand up and read it, not in a monotone fashion. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azarus, by descent of me. Are you kidding me? If we start envisioning that this is God's word spoken to us, and, and look at how God is described in the scriptures, angry, joyful, sorrowful, God is a passionate God. And he wrote a passionate word to us. Let's read it. Like it's his word spoken to us. Because I'm telling you what, when we start reading the word of God like this, opposing the evil one, we recognize his schemes a lot easier, a lot quicker. It was said of Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a guy who understood riddles, means that he was a deceitful individual. He loved to trick people, just like the evil one loves to trick people and deceive saints. But if we're in the Word of God, if we're reading the Word of God to hear from God, we're not going to get tripped up by the evil one's schemes. As we're opposed by the evil one, if we're reading the Word of God, we're in the Word of God, we're enjoying the Word of God, we're hearing from God, then guess what? The evil one, we believe the evil one is defeated, and we're living a life that is alive as a new creation in Christ Jesus. And if we're reading the word of God, the way we're supposed to be, when we start with the whole I like, I like, I like, we'll surrender to God and say, God, I just want to be a part of your church family. I just want to be used by you. I want to submit fully to your will. And this isn't about what I like, but this is about who you are and me living in light of who you are. Very interesting thing about Daniel At the conclusion of this chapter in verse 27. He is sick for six days. But after that six day, what did he do? He got back up and he went back to work. Though he did not fully understand everything that he saw, he submitted himself to the will of God and went back and pursued the will of God. Please join with me in prayer. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you so much for apocalyptic literature. And, and though we don't understand all of this, this morning we, we see that there's a lot of things that we see on the backside looking at Daniel, and we see and we're able to identify certain things in regards to the text. But Lord, let our knowledge of facts not diminish the lesson that you were trying to teach Daniel that he is to understand and to understand what you are doing is to believe in who you are and to trust in who you are. And Lord God, you have revealed who you are to us so powerfully through the holy word of God. And Lord, may we be a people that read your word. In Jesus' most holy and precious name we pray, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.